0: Hello, and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today, I have Caroline Verlang, who is a final year PhD candidate in the Department of Biological Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. At MIT, Caroline is a civil scholar an NSF Graduate Research Fellow at the Biological Engineering Department. And in Katharina Rubeck's lab, she studies how unique molecules in mucus can be leveraged to make antivirulence therapeutics to fight infections while circumventing antibiotic resistance. Before coming to MIT, Caroline earned her B.S. in Chemical Engineering at Caltech and spent a year in Switzerland as a Fulbright Fellow at EPFL. Welcome, Caroline.
1: Hi, Avigan. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll just add on to that. I use she series pronouns. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I listened to the first podcast you released with um, Priyanka D'Souza, and um, I know one of the things we're going to talk about later is imposter syndrome, and I have to say listening to that, I was like, oh man, she is so cool and so eloquent, and I hope I can be like 10% as uh, insightful as she really was. I was like, this is a great podcast so i'm really glad you're starting it and um, i think there'll be lots of good conversations hopefully i'm an okay one <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we are really glad to have your friend in box so coming so, so for start to stay could you just tell us about your growing of years and how were you motivated to get into science were there any role models you looked up to or was it a certain vicious path you took to science and the world of scientific research
1: sure um So I grew up in Texas, so kind of in the suburban area around Houston, and um, both my parents, um, my dad worked in kind of like the oil industry, which is like very common for Texas. So I think that's something that was kind of always in my ecosphere. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, And yeah, so for me, it was kind of a gradual thing getting into science. I think growing up, I was always excited by a lot of different things. I loved... Learning languages, I loved reading books. (laughs) Um, For a while, I really wanted to be a librarian. Um, But then I think, sort of, when I was in high school, um, you know, you start taking more classes, and I just found like I would procrastinate doing other homework by doing my calculus homework first, or like I would always come home and it would be so easy for me to want to work on my biology or my chemistry or my physics, and then I would put off and off and off, like, you know, writing essays or um, studying for history or something like that. So I think I really kind of gradually started to realize, like, oh, this is something I'm really attracted to. And um, of course, I think we all, maybe I'm a product of this, there's like this ecosystem of encouraging people to get into STEM. And I realized, like, I think this is a career I would really enjoy. Um, And sort of beyond that, I think I started to realize that I really wanted to make an impact in the world and um, science and engineering felt like something where independent of me as a person, maybe I could create something that in some small way is like a technological advance that would um, help people's lives. And um, it's something that, you know, I think in society, there's a lot of things we can do to make the world a better place, you know, We need to destroy racism, we need to destroy transphobia, we need to have less, you know, inequality um, in terms of like wealth and stuff, but technology is something that like you don't really have to make a political change if you just like create something that's a little bit better. People are going to accept it regardless of kind of where it came from, which I think is a really attractive um, proposition. (laughs) So for me, I think I ended up choosing chemical engineering because a bit naively, I think, because I thought, oh, I like love um, in my personal life. I was like, things that have a really big impact on me are medicine because you're like, I have a headache, I take <laughs> an Advil and it's just magically gone. Like, that's amazing. Um, you know, I think pharmaceuticals were something that I thought was like just a magic part of modern life. And I thought, oh, chemical engineering will be a way to pursue this. Of course, um, chemical engineering there's a lot more to that and it's sometimes it's more about the process than necessarily like creating new chemicals but um i continue to really enjoy it so i was really glad with that decision um but yeah um i'm saying i'm a lot in this podcast this is great (laughs) uh yeah and i think uh oh my gosh okay so yeah so
0: uh, for a lot of people chemical engineering is so is a certain misnomer and many a times i feel that whenever it's pointed out to my school is chemical engineering, there should be a disclaimer attached to it because many mistake it for chemistry or many mistake it for something totally different and then we come and we're doing some high level mathematics stuff with stuff we never expected to do in the first place. So yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's definitely it's interesting. I think uh, for me I was just like in my courses and I was like well I like math and I like chemistry and I like physics and I like biology. So like this major seems to combine all of these things and um, I think it was true to its word. I really got um, in my undergraduate degree, we got to be exposed to a lot of different things. And it was really fun to learn about, you know, thermodynamics and transport. And um, one thing that was really exciting to learn about in college, and I think really solidifies the chemical engineering processes, like the Haber-Bosch process, um, which of course we have to have the disclaimer that, you know, the inventor is a very problematic person, <laughs> but um, it was really kind of an invention where, you know, he didn't have to come up with the chemistry, but he invented a system of doing this reaction to produce fertilizer that has, you know, now ended up feeding billions of people. And um, in a way, it's like applying kind of distinct principles and really improving um, something that someone already built. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. So coming to under, your undergraduate days, you went to Caltech, which was a top-ranked school. So how was it sort of tra- transitioning to, to, to coming to that high-pressure environment? And then for grad school also, you came into MIT. So you were in high-pressure environments throughout. So how was it sort of negotiating those high-pressure environments where some, there were some top professors, Nobel laureates, and all struggling around, as well as some very fantastic peers around you doing some pretty amazing stuff? So how was it all like?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um sometimes it's hard to describe these things because you're like, oh, I only lived one experience, so I don't know <laughs> what to compare it to, which in science, we always love to compare to something relative to control. But um yeah, I think I was really I didn't ever expect to be admitted to Caltech um or a school like that, you know. Um my high school, I went to a public school in Texas and it was a really big high school, and I don't, I don't know, I guess this is relative to American terms, but, <laughs> you know, we had like 4,000 students, so 1,000 students in each year, and I wasn't actually even the valedictorian of my school, um, and I think I was like the first person in a while who had uh, been accepted to Caltech, um, at least the first person that I ever knew. So, it was definitely a real shock, and I was so excited <laughs> when I got my application letter, um, Yes. And something I guess an advice I think people always kind of want to have is like, how do you write an application that's successful to a school like this? And like I was a tour guide for some years when I was at Caltech, which was always kind of fun. So you get to talk to all the high schoolers who are coming to visit campus and considering it. And I think my bit of advice I always have is that you just kind of have to do things that you're really passionate about and invested in. And you can talk about that in your application. And I think that's what comes through to the readers is Um, you're doing something you love. So of course, there are like people in my classmates who I was like, I am so in awe of you. And many of those people have continued to be insanely (laughs) talented um, and incredibly driven and dedicated scientists who just like exceed all expectations. You know, I have a friend who like completed his PhD in like two years. And you're just like, how is that even possible? Um, But I think something you kind of come to learn is that like everybody has their own path and their different journey and um, everybody comes from a really different background. So, you know, there's some people who have completed research in high school or, you know, won medals in competitions like the Siemens science competition or something. Um, But, you know, I never really knew anybody who did research. I didn't even like know (laughs) what that was. So for me in high school, like, I, you know, worked at like a tutoring company, which is actually international, like Kumon, um, which is something like I had done as a kid, and so then I like started working there in high school, and that was really fun. I loved teaching and um, thinking about math and kind of seeing it through like other people's eyes. And um, I was really involved in like different student government activities, so I was on like our student council and did a lot of like um, charity work and that kind of thing. But um, I think just people want to see like that you're doing the best that you can under your circumstances so like if you are someone who's you know parent is a professor and you like grew up in princeton then like you might be like expected to like try to do research because you know what that's like but if you're from a smaller area and you don't have access to those opportunities maybe showing an interest in science is you know going to a community college or um taking kind of an advanced course or like as many AP courses as your school offers and um, trying to succeed in those the best that you can. So um, I think everybody has like a different uh, path there. And something that's nice about the American system is that it is a little bit more flexible and more holistic and it looks at someone as like a whole person um, and kind of considers their background and whether they've had to deal with particular struggles like sick family members or um, economic, difficulties that um may have like impacted what they were able to do in high school but um yeah i've being a caltech itself was really great it's um i think different than people think <laughs> maybe beforehand it was different than i thought i was like oh i'm gonna need to be able to like build a computer from scratch. And like, I don't know, you see people in movies who just like plug in their computer to anything and can like hack into something in a second. And I like, I was like, I don't know. I'm like not that good at computer science. <laughs> um, so I'm like, I, I don't know how to build a computer. You know, I'm not someone I wasn't like a gamer. Like I, um, my hobbies were like very different. I was like really into knitting. Which is something I wrote about in my application. It's like I loved making knitting patterns, which is a way very mathematical, but it's it's definitely a different expression of it. Um, so yeah, it's 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 definitely a fun place where everybody's a nerd. And something I really enjoyed was that everyone there was focused on math and science. So when I was picking between there and maybe like a larger, um, you know, in Texas we have really great universities like the University of Texas at Austin. And you know, in retrospect, I think you can. Get equally as good of an education at um, a school like that. Like, I don't think in a way that Caltech has something, you know, we don't have some secret sauce of teaching calculus or differential equations that's like gonna make you better <laughs> than if you took differential equations somewhere else. But um, what you do get is access to this really great network of peers. And because Caltech is so small, there's like around 230. Um, 250 students in every year. So for me, that was a big step down. I had a thousand students in my class and I went to 250. Um, You're really good to know everyone in your class and you end up having really great access to uh, professors and different resources at the school. And that's something that's really nice about a private school and the way you pay for it, like tuition can be expensive and there can be really good financial aid um, um, for domestic students at least. But um you have the opportunity where like I got to start working in a research lab as a freshman which is crazy <laughs> and I think um I also got the opportunity to TA a bunch of courses. I think I TA'd six courses while I was an undergrad Um and that's something that I don't think people often get the opportunity to do but just because Caltech was such a small school um the thing I always say is like everybody had to do as much as they could so like you know I was involved in this like investment board that we had and um we have these our dormitories were um called like houses kind of like in harry potter and so i was like very involved in my um, house there and you know but it was something like we didn't have journalism majors so there were just random you know physics majors being the newspaper editor and like the yearbook editor and uh, of course we had all the normal college things like acapella and stuff like that but in a way it was you know, a reasonably normal college experience. It was just that, you know, my roommate was doing high energy particle physics and the people down in the hall from me were doing internships at Google. And it was like very normal and expected that people were all working really hard. And that wasn't w- nice in a way in that like, you know, all of my friends were staying up with me to study <laughs> late into the night. And um, we understood that like, oh, if I can't like, you know, go, um, hang out tonight because I have to do work and that was like a really legitimate ex- expected excuse and so like we didn't have as much peer pressure from that but I think you know as much as we were working um, you know 12-14 hour days like between classes and everything like I think people through like clubs and activities and the houses really found time to um, get to know each other well but um, Yes, it definitely opened a lot of doors for me. I feel like I'm talking a really long time, but um, like I got to study abroad in England and that was super fun. Um, and for me, like getting the Fulbright Fellowship, that's something that I think, you know, uh, I wouldn't even have known about, I think, if I went to a different school because um, it was something where I, I had the study abroad experience and our um you know the staff person who's kind of been of recording those things was like oh like maybe you would also want to apply to this fellowship and i was like oh i didn't even know that was a thing and so then i learned about it and um i ended up going to a conference in the summer before my senior year and i saw this talk by um my future advisor like sebastian merkel and i was like he, and this is great publicity i think for any prof to know like <laughs> he put up a slide of like the university, which is right next to Lac um, leman or Lake Geneva um, in Switzerland. And it's absolutely, it's a gorgeous campus. And he was like, come work here. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> um, also, I love your research. And so I went and talked to him and he was like, sure you should apply. So um, I like, you know, went through the application and I was lucky enough that it was successful. So that was pretty exciting. Um I feel like I could continue monologuing mag- about my whole life right now if you don't <laughs> interrupt me. <laughs> but um yeah, it's, That's de- the whole it's definitely motive
0: of random walks.
1: Yeah, I guess this was a lot of the positive I should I should also emphasize the negative too of which is what you asked about with the high pressure environment, I guess is um yeah, it's really different, you know, like I was at a school with a thousand people and like you know, there may maybe like thirty people in my AP physics course, and so uh you're like, oh, this is, I'm like, obviously very good at physics. And you know, if you're like the best student in that class, and then you're like, I'm great at things. And so then you go into this environment where you're like, am I great at things? (laughs) And I think I remember like my first week or something. um, In the US, like, it's really common, we'll have these like problem sets you have to do every week. Um, And at Caltech, that's like a big part of the culture is it's like every course you have, you have to do one problem set every week and like that's gonna take you expected at least six hours, like a lot of times it'll take more um, per course. So like all of your time is like spent doing that and you'll get on the schedule of like, okay, Monday I have to do chemistry, Tuesday I gotta do physics, like Wednesday I gotta do um, uh, calculus, like that kind of thing. And then, what's one thing that's nice is that uh, at Caltech at least they have all of the freshmen take the same courses for the first year. Um, which is a really good opportunity to explore fields and really kind of find out what you like, which for me, there was a part of me that was like, oh, maybe I'll be a math major, and then I took my first proof-based math course, and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm not going to be a math major. Um, So that was fun, and, you know, for instance, my roommate came in, and she was going to be uh, pre-med, and then she loved the physics courses so much, she ended up switching to physics, and has been wildly successful in that, so... I think it's good to have exposure to that if it's if it's possible. But one thing that was really nice is it built this community and you had the opportunity to kind of try out all these things, but also you kind of see what things maybe you're a little bit more talented at than others and people do kind of find their niches, which is nice, but um, it can be really stressful like for people the first time, uh, you know, you get a C or something or, I remember spring term, like I got a three out of 10 on a quiz and I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what is happening to me? I'm going to flunk out of school. But um, yeah, I cut myself off of an anecdote where like, I think my first week of freshman year, I was like, I finished my whole chemistry set and I just completely forgot to turn it in. And I realized like, and I woke up the next day and I was like, oh my goodness. And I was just like, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just like email the professor and they were like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) So that is something I think my big bit of advice is, um, I know it's different everywhere, but in general, I think people want to be kind and people will give you the benefit of the doubt and you know, you shouldn't try to take advantage, but um, most things aren't usually as strict as they appear to be, which can be nice. Um, Yeah, so that was definitely something and I think having, making good friends um, who you can work together with on problem sets because uh, I think really during Caltech was when I like kind of started to learn like the best things really come through collaboration and you can't do everything by yourself and there (laughs) is a limit to what one person can do and yeah, like in, and science in general, we're building off you know, the mounds of work that everyone else has done. And you contribute your bit and you can help your friend on their chemistry set. And then they will help you on your physics set and you can teach each other. And that's a good experience because you learn. So there's very little to be gained from being like super competitive in an exclusionary way. And um, I actually have to think like, you know, one of my high school friends, we used to like study for the PSAT together. And that was like my first, I think, really strong experience in like how you can uh, build each other up in a way that's good for everybody. Like life isn't a zero sum game. Like I think collaboration makes everything better. Um, but yes, it was, it was very stressful. We started to sleep really different hours. Um, I think one thing I really learned at Caltech, which is great. And I think the conversation society has kind of changed around this is the importance of mental health and balance and, um, people there um, we know like the most important part (laughs) of succeeding in science is staying alive and staying happy and if to do that you need to maybe like pace yourself out a little bit you don't have to take five courses a term maybe you take three or four courses a term and maybe you need help from like going to counseling or something like that and like people need to do what they need to do to succeed and something you know I know now which it makes me feel old to say this like 10 years later is there's no one route to success and like in the scheme of things if you take five years to graduate versus four years you know nobody really cares, (laughs) like it doesn't really matter at all. Maybe you take a semester off to do like a co-op or an internship or something. And um, if for you, it's like for much more important to get like practical experience in a field than just like taking more courses, like I think so many paths are valid and um, it's really just important to like, do what you're interested in because trying to force yourself to do something you're not interested in is never going to end up well.
0: those are some really great points you have made. And, uh, so coming to a very great point that you made was about the importance of networking. For a lot of people, people think that academia has, has a veneer of meritocracy around it. People think it's only merit that pulls you through. But as you said, going to a good school doesn't mean you solve differential equations way better. But you actually get access to a terrific network that sort of enables you to do a lot of things that you otherwise couldn't have and speaking from your experience about transitioning from a public school to a great university, that was something you, you saw firsthand. So basically, uh, and then you spoke about getting a Fulbright Fellowship at uh, Sebastian Mokul's Lab and EPFL and going off to Switzerland for a year. So, so basically, how, did it, how, has, how important has, been, has networking been for you throughout your research career as a whole?
1: Yeah, I guess I would say it has been wildly invaluable to me. (laughs) Yeah, which is, it's something that's fun that, um, you know, I, in, in my graduate program, we have people from lots of different backgrounds, you know, not everyone here at MIT is like coming from, you know, Stanford or Caltech or um, Cambridge or something like this but people do come from like all sorts of different backgrounds, whether in the US we have a lot of really strong, um, we call them like state flagship universities. Um, so there's like a lot of those programs, there's people coming internationally. So I think there's like a lot of different ways you can get to this program, but something I sometimes feel guilty about is it like feels like it was much easier for me. <laughs> Just if only because I like knew the process and I knew what to do. So you know, I had friends who were in chemical engineering in the years above me. So I got to um, see how they applied to graduate school. And even before that, I like learned like, okay, if I want to go to graduate school, what makes me a good applicant? So I knew that I wanted to do research, but A, how do I even ask to be in a research lab? So, you know, I had friends and like you know in a way they're kind of peers but you know they have that one year or two years of experience ahead of you which in a way can be so valuable of them being like okay this is like how you write an email to a professor and ask to do research in their lab or like even that you should do that because um i think you know usually you think oh if i want to get a job i should wait until there's a job posting but in academia really this there's very rarely like an actual job posting for any position so It's it's a lot on the applicant to kind of seek out whether it's, you know, an undergraduate research position or um, you know, a postdoctoral fellowship. Like it's on you to kind of contact the person and then they'll decide whether they like will invent a position for you, um based on like their funding and whatever, which one thing I would say is like don't take it too personally if someone like doesn't have a spot for you. Sometimes labs are just full and like sometimes people just (laughs) <laughs> don't have the bandwidth but um yeah, I think that was really valuable so I learned like okay I need to do research I learned um kind of you know how to balance my time I learned that it's okay to switch research labs if I'm not totally interested in what I was doing so for me I started out like in inorganic organic chemistry and that was a really great experience and it was really fun um learning to do research there and I'm so grateful like that first research experience I had was so positive because I also had some friends who had really negative (laughs) first research experiences and um maybe didn't end up pursuing science um so that's that's something I'm really grateful for but um which I'll just shout out James McCone he's now a professor at the University of Pittsburgh um so if anyone's looking for a great mentor um Sorry, I'm totally bad at losing my trail of thought. But yeah, so I think the network was really important in giving you the advice of like, you know, what courses to take, that kind of thing. And then when it came around the time to apply for graduate school, like I had friends who gave me their applications to read and, um, you know, gave me like, okay, this is what you need to include in a personal statement. This is how you should format your CV. Um, Also, you should think about applying to these fellowships. So, you know, I was applying to the Fulbright, but there's also Um, different research fellowships that will like support you during graduate school. So like the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, um, or there's some fellowships from like the Department of Defense and things like that, um, that people can apply to. And that's something that really was a leg up because like, it is... you're more likely to get that fellowship if you apply for it in as an undergraduate than as a graduate student. I think partially because they expect a little bit less from you because <laughs> you're an undergraduate, and then partially because um, there are fewer people who apply at that stage. You know, people become aware of it later, so that's something that can be really valuable. And I think then coming into graduate school with a bit of your own funding can help you find the right placement in the lab you want and things like that. Um, but one thing that I think uh, this is a bit of a tangent, <laughs> but I just want to shout out um, to my current department and some students started about four or five years ago, this program called the BE Application Assistance Program, which they call BEEP. And uh, you can check it out at our website, be.mit.edu. And, um, this is my hashtag plug. <laughs> you got to plug something if you're on a podcast, right? But basically, the idea is that it, it's trying to be that, you know, older friend who kind of has that source of advice for applicants who are coming from backgrounds where maybe they don't have that. Um, because it, it can be surprising, like, someone can be a great candidate and just not really know what to talk about in their personal statement or not have seen one that was successful. Um, and so this program, the aim is, and, you know, we're, we, I think, except hundreds of people every year, we like read and help with their applications and it's met volunteers from our graduate program who read applications. So like this semester I worked with two different people, one from Canada and one from Mexico um, to kind of help them figure out like, what's the best way to market their experience kind of, and talk about what they've done in a way that like makes sense to the professors who are going to be reading it um because you know we're all coming from different backgrounds and some sometimes it's hard to know what needs more context and that kind of thing so i think that's been a really great thing that um our program has started and it's been really cool you know we'll, we'll have people come in who were like part of the program and they feel so positive and happy about it and um it's definitely something I would suggest any of your listeners reach out to. So it it can be, you may don't have to end up applying to our program, but you know, if you're a bioengineer thinking about graduate school, you should check it out. And I think other departments at MIT have started similar things. So I know chemical engineering has one um, and maybe other ones too. So you can check out like, they're usually linked on the application part of the website, um, but that's something I would suggest. But yeah, I think having that support and kind of that insider knowledge is really, really valuable in navigating life um, in general too. I mean, now that I'm in graduate school, it's something that keeps coming back where like uh, either at conferences, you know people or, you know, as we're all trying to find jobs, like, you know, I had a friend call me and he was like, I'm starting a startup and I need battery scientists. And I was like, I know a battery scientist. And then now she's working at his startup. So it's like kind of, um, that kind of a thing where like, it's, it's nice to have a network, but I think it's something people will like build naturally. And, you know, networking, I think is something that like sounds, sounds gross. And I'm always like, I don't want to just like meet people, but it's really just kind of under like getting to know people that you're kind of around anyway, and um, maybe keeping in touch. And even if you haven't been in touch for four years, like it's okay to reach out to somebody and talk to them um about like career stuff, about different things and you never know like kind of what connections you make in life um that will end up being useful. But I think it's just kind of don't underestimate anybody and just understand that um your peers really end up being a huge valuable resource like regardless of where you're coming from. So yeah. Those that are some really
0: questions? great things you talked about. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. It's a pleasure listening to you speak, and that's a very important thing that you have all started at the Department of Biological Engineering at MIT, and basically this sort of helps sort of these underrepresented groups of people who are sort of first generation students in science. So even if not first generation, they're the first ones to actually consider research science as a career. So for them it's yeah. sort of basically rather than science being only open to the old boys' network, it sort of tries to make science a more equitable and just in its thing. So Yes, yeah. So as a researcher, so your undergraduate days, you interned in Professor Harry Krais and Professor Francis Arnold's lab, two phenomenal scientists, two phenomenal chemists who have actually revolutionized the world. And that even that statement is an understatement of sorts. So how was it sort of working with them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel guilty because I feel like you answered, asked me that in the last question and I just didn't answer it. <laughs> um, Apparently, I have way more thoughts than I thought I did that I want to talk about. Um, yeah, I think it was—it's something that's like so weird because it felt kind of random at the time. It really was a random walk of like kind of how you get there, where it's was just kind of like small baby steps. Where we had this um, really cool thing at my university, and this is something I suggest to anyone, but they had. Um, seminars for freshmen and the idea was that you would they were like over lunch so they would give you free pizza um (laughs) which i don't know if this is something everywhere but in general seminars definitely bribe you to come there with food and you should take the bribe and get the free food when possible um so there was one in like kind of chemistry and so like every week it would be like a professor coming and talking to this group of freshmen about their research and so it was a really great way to like kind of learn about what was happening at my own university and um, hear about people's research from themselves and like what sounded really cool and so I think it was kind of encouraged that if you like heard a presentation you really liked then you would talk to the person and kind of you know ask to be in the research group but I mean this is something that I think people can do anywhere like try to take advantage of any seminar series at your university. to find out more about research in general and research in your department, and you know it's a good way you can ask a question afterwards and then um, contact the person and be like, "I asked you a question <laughs> even virtually, I know it's a little bit harder than just walking up to someone after a presentation, but I think it's still people are always so happy to talk to anyone um, interested in the research I think so for me yeah i was I actually like had contacted one or two other professors who were like no i'm not interested <laughs> in freshmen or i like ended up talking to them about projects and then was like oh i'm not actually that interested in this but um harry of course um in addition to he does so many has done so many really cool things in bio and organic chemistry but he was talking about this project related to artificial photosynthesis um which of course is what uh, james uh, mccone was working on who i mentioned earlier and so I kind of was like, oh man, this is the coolest thing. And of course I think we all feel like, you know, addressing climate change is like a huge important problem. And I was like, oh, this is wild. I would be so excited to work on this. And so I contacted him and then he was like, okay, like email my secretary and then she will do this thing. And so like so many students are like interested in working in Harry's lab, but he's really encouraging of it. So he had this like little mixer where (laughs) it was like, I don't know 10 or 12 undergraduate students and like 10 or 12 graduate students and postdocs in his group and then the graduate students and postdocs like talked about what they were doing and then the undergraduate students like we like networked and then decided who <laughs> we kind of wanted to work with so I was like glommed on to James and I was like this is so cool that I want to work with you and he was really great and enthusiastic about it and um, was really great at like kind of teaching me how to do research and helped me read my first papers and um That was very exciting and one thing too i'll encourage people to do and it depends is like we have this program at caltech called surf which is like the summer undergraduate research fellowship um, that people can apply to there's also another one called wave um, which is more focused specifically on underrepresented uh, underrepresented students (laughs) that's not how you say that Um, and actually and can include people um, who are undocumented immigrants in the united states Um, so that's another program you can apply to. Surf and Wave, we're capitalizing on that California connection. Um, but, um, yeah, so I had to kind of write like a fellowship application for that. And that's something that I think is a really good exercise is writing your research proposal in general, but sorry, I'm becoming totally tangential to the question you asked me. But anyways, yeah, so it was, it was really exciting. And I think something too when you kind of like work with these big name people, you end up really working more closely with your mentor and then you'll kind of talk to you know, especially when you're an undergraduate, like (laughs) you'll talk to your like um, research professor mentor, like, I don't know, like once a week at group meeting and like maybe at lab socials or something like that. But I mean, I think the thing that makes Harry so great is beyond being insanely genius at science, you know, he would sit there in group meeting and like people could draw like a stick chemical structure on the board and he would like say what (laughs) wavelength, it would like absorb light at, which was crazy. Um, he was just incredible, but he was just, I mean, I guess he still is, but <laughs> he is just a really fun person and plays such a s- strong emphasis on creating a really positive group culture that I think was what kept me so interested in science. The fact that, um, you know, he f- would have lab socials every week and he thought it was really important that, you know, partners stay together so he would like help find his students who got faculty positions like help their partners like find jobs or placements in like the same area as them and you know I think he really expected everyone to do great science but I think he understood that like the way to cultivate that is through a positive work environment that people want to be in and not like being um toxic or anything like that so I think that's the best thing about him. He's like a bundle of laughs and has done so much, you know, to promote science just in the whole California community and like obviously across the world. He's incredible. Um but you know, beyond that, you know, I like ended up <laughs> I don't know if he would know who I was now, right? So I think that's something that's kind of a weird thing of like the hierarchy of academia where really what mattered was that I made a good impression, right, on my graduate student mentor and um He was really incredible at like teaching me about science and that sort of thing and obviously he received in turn like great mentorship from Harry, which is probably what enabled him to be such a good teacher. Um, But that's kind of how that worked and then um, Basically through coursework, um, even though I had such a great positive experience in Harry's lab, I kind of realized like I wasn't so interested in continuing in chemistry and I really started to be excited by biological problems. And so for my next experience, the next summer I was like, you know, I think I really want to um, do research on fire related problems. So I started looking at drug delivery and that kind of thing. And actually it was also an opportunity where I was like, it might be nice to spend some time at home. (laughs) Cause you know, you spend, I was in California and my parents were in Texas. So I applied for some funding to do research um, at Rice, which this is again, one of those advantages of being at, um, you know, a privileged school was that like I was able to find out about kind of some of these like uh, random funding opportunities for some summer, summer undergraduate researchers that I may not otherwise have. Um, but I think that's something that like you, if you apply early enough, a lot of times, like the professors whose labs you're applying to will like tell you about that. So it's good to, I don't know, apply always like nine months in advance or something. So you don't miss those kind of deadlines. Um, most universities will like have that so I got this funding and so I went to work with um, Tony Mikos at Rice University um, which was like pretty close to my parents house and that was really fun so I got to live with them again um, and eat Texas food <laughs> which was great and be hot in a Texas summer which of course <laughs> now is probably even hotter than it was then um, so I was it was really cool I like worked in this tissue engineering lab and Um, I also had a great mentor there, Sharita Shaw, and she was an MD, PhD student in chemical engineering. And um, she of course gave me the advice that I should do my PhD in chemical engineering, even if I wanna do bio research, which I think is good advice, but obviously I didn't end up taking that because (laughs) I'm doing my PhD in bioengineering. So that was really cool. Um, I loved, I liked working there too, but I think again, I was like, okay, well, this was like fun but I admit I wasn't the biggest fan of doing tissue culture for mammalian cells, which can be very time consuming and elaborative. And also I was like, I don't really want to do animal models, which I like didn't necessarily like morally opposed, but it was just like on the day to day, this wasn't something I was like so into. Um, So kind of, I came back and I had had, I had taken um, Francis Arnold's course uh, the year, no, I ended up taking her course, but, um, and I was just like, oh, this is it. <laughs> like, um, I think anyone who speak, hears Frances speak will just agree with that, where it's like, yeah, she she can pitch drug with evolution, like nothing else. And then you're just like, of course. And so something we talked about in coursework where she was teaching enzyme kinetics. So I guess this is one advantage where like, you know, I got to learn enzyme kinetics from Frances Arnold. Um, And that allowed me, I had her in class, you know, a couple times a week, so it was much easier to approach her than maybe otherwise. Um, But yeah, so she was talking about the Haver-Bosch process and teaching us about that, but then um, it was also the point of, okay, but this is a reaction that takes incredibly high temperature, incredibly high pressure, but nature does it, you know, creates ammonia, all of the time fixes ammonia sorry (laughs) all of the time at room temperature you know atmospheric pressure plants do it bacteria do it fungi do it like that is incredible so what is it that enables that and it's the magic of enzymes that they can force these in a way reactions that are sometimes kind of unlikely in really um low energy conditions and that's a tool that not only like we can admire of how it is in nature, but it's a tool that we can harvest and use um, to do chemistry like in the lab. And I think that was just for me, like totally mind blowing. (laughs) Um, And of course the idea is that you can take an enzyme that does A and you can say, well, like what if I just, you know, poke it for a while and give it a little bit of coaxing and keep gently encouraging it to do B. And eventually, you know, and this is like the genius of Francis and why she won a Nobel prize as everyone was like, that's not gonna happen, but she proved that it does happen and it happens over and over and over again. Um, which you can see in her huge body of published work that, yeah, you can kind of convince an enzyme to change its mind by like slightly, you know, changing a couple amino acids and you don't even have to be that smart about it. Like it'll just happen randomly if you're uh, screening and selecting for the right thing. So it's it's a very ingenious process and, something that can be applied everywhere so I don't know I followed the same formula where I you know when I've talked to her emailed her my CV, and then um you know she the way she did recruitment was she like sent out people's CVs to her whole lab and was like does anyone want to work with this person so um I talked with a couple people and I ended up finding another great mentor um a postdoc named Artemis uh, Bogosian and she was actually what's crazy about that is that she ended up becoming a professor at EPFL in Switzerland where I ended up working at the same time. So she like moved there like six months before me. So that was really fun when I moved there. I like had someone I knew, Um, but she's insane. So also if you wanna work in Switzerland with a really cool, she does uh, nano biosensors now. Um, She's also incredible. Um, I'm getting a little bit tangential right now. I forget what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about how exciting research is. Um, but yeah, working with Frances was really cool. Um, I think her whole lab group, everyone was working on really exciting projects. Like, you know, she loves Coke Zero. That's my that's my plug for Francis. It's my insider knowledge. So my most embarrassing moment in my life once was I was like carrying Coke Zero <laughs> into the building, <laughs> and, like because we were like moving the food for group meeting. Um, so we were all, like, helping to, like, carry, like, um, you know, like, we would have, like, you know, pizza or, like, Indian food or something, and then also, like, carrying the Coke Zero, which was funny enough, like, we kept in, like, a cold room that people stopped using because it was, like, infected with bacteriophage. I don't know if that's a good thing to share, but (laughs) we were, like, carrying that, and I, like, somehow, like, the package broke, and then these cans were, like, popping and exploding, like, everywhere, and I was, like, ah! (laughs) Um, so that was fun but uh kind of a random story not really that funny unless you're me but um yeah she also was someone who people worked really hard in her lab but i think she encouraged community and she would have this like big barbecue every year um where she would like roast a pig (laughs) at her house and then everyone would bring a side um so yeah that was that was really cool but um She's just, she's a very inspirational figure and, you know, people can read up on, now there's a multitude written about her life story, but um, she's someone who I think, like, never let discrimination get in the way of her success and just, like, powered through every challenge she's ever faced in her life. So, like, I can only dream of, like, being 5% as um, strong as, like, she has been or as brilliant, right, so. Um, yeah that was a very long story yeah (laughs) I should also shout out I would also shout out to Sebastian that he was great but um when I was in Switzerland (laughs) but that was actually kind of funny where I joined his group and then he ended up going on sabbatical like three months after I joined um which was kind of funny so we had this kind of like long distance mentoring relationship after I joined his group um which was pretty interesting but I loved being in Switzerland and um working there too. And he's definitely a very um, fun and uh, great scientist. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so the, those are some very funny and as well as insightful anecdotes that you shared. So uh, as you said, you worked with uh, Sir Sebastian Merkel's lab at EPFL and as a Fulbright fellow. And you also said uh, for a brief while you were at Cambridge on our summer research program. So how, uh, is there, and you have been uh, doing undergrad and grad school, you have been at uh, Caltech and MIT in America. So were the European culture, the Swiss and the English culture sort of research culture or the research environment that you found over The any way different than the American one that you experienced or was it more or less similar?
1: Yeah, great question, Um, as always. (laughs) So I will admit, so I was only at Cambridge for like, I don't know, 10 weeks or something. So um, both of our schools are kind of on this like quarter system. So I was only there for one quarter. So I didn't end up doing research there, um, though I had a lot of fun um, (laughs) taking courses and stuff. Um, You can definitely recommend that place to anyone. Um, Delicious food. Um, Yeah, but this is not turning out to be very insightful. Yeah, Cambridge is great. I think something that's really interesting there was like a big culture shock for me of like how coursework was taught. So um, there's like this focus of really, you're just kind of like learning and studying for the first two terms. And then in Easter term, you have like all of your exams so for us it was a little bit different because uh we still had to take our exams before we left england so we ended up having them kind of in december at the end of our term anyway but it was like a big culture shock for us especially coming from caltech where there was this culture of you know doing problem sets every week for all of your courses and kind of having all of this work all the time and then when you got to cambridge there was still like you know lab courses and you had to kind of write like lab reports and things like that but there was this like um uh, tutor system where you would, like, instead of kind of turning in problems that's to be graded, um, that went towards your final grade, so, like, I think in Caltech, it was, like, our homework would end up being, like, 40 percent of our term, um, grade or something, like, there you would, like, do the work, and, um, it, like, might go some portion to your final grade, but really, it was a little bit more about, like, the learning process, so it was, like, an interesting culture where it was a lot more, like, self-directed of, like, you know, are you going to, like, finish the whole thing through, like, the example problems that they give, and then you show up to talk about, like, that, or, like, if you're stuck, like, are you going to end up talking to it with them, but I think that was, like, a really interesting system, and it was definitely more um, self-directed, and luckily, I had been trained to be, like, really (laughs) on top of things, but I, sometimes I wonder, I'm, like, oh, I don't know if I, like, would have, succeeded as well as it at a university like this, because sometimes I need a little bit more external reinforcement, um, but in general, I mean, that was the biggest part of that experience for me that was different was being at a school where there were a multitude of majors, so, like, my neighbor next door was um, a musician, and he was majoring in, like, music theory, and, like, did theater, and he would, like, play his piano all night, and, like, sung in the choir, and, like, that was, like, such a different world for me so it was like just a reminder of like oh yeah like <laughs> things exist outside of math and science and um like the you know you would meet classics majors like studying greek and like latin and you know they were like so intense they would like come into university like already speaking like greek like ancient greek and i would just be like or and latin and i would be like who are these people <laughs> um but yeah it's it's definitely for me that was a real exposure to like you know academia isn't just science research there's also research that goes on in a variety of fields and in terms of like the human endeavor of like studying the meaning of existence like there's so much really cool research that goes on um in so many fields yeah besides hard science hard sciences and like beyond even like economics and social science and um those kind of things. Like there's a lot of very cool things that people do. Um, yeah. So I think that was the best part of that experience for me. And, um, it was like, you know, I was living in a new country and, um, I had li- spent a lot of time in Brazil because my, my dad is from there. Um, so I had a little bit of experience like being on my own, but you know, that was different. Cause you know, I was like staying with my aunt or something like this. Um, So it was definitely a really different experience of like totally adjusting to a new culture and kind of being an outsider, even though I'm still as an American who speaks the language very much an insider, but it was definitely made me really aware of my own Americanness because (laughs) no matter who we are, like wherever you live in your bubble, like um, (laughs) the default doesn't seem to be remarked upon. But then like once you kind of change, you're like, oh, I am like a little bit more, um, Willing to introduce myself to random people and like, you know, I would go in the dining hall and just sit down next to strangers and they were like, Hello. And I was like, Hello, I'm Caroline. I'm so delighted to meet you. Um, Which I think culturally (laughs) was a little bit different. Um, Yeah. And then I can switch to Switzerland, but I don't know if you have a follow up question for that.
0: Yeah. So how was the Swiss experience like was it similar to the English experience or was it somewhat different?
1: Yeah, good question. So the Swiss experience was totally different, um, I think, because it was shifting from, you know, there I was doing courses, and in, in Switzerland, I, I was had just graduated college, and so I was going all of a sudden to doing research full-time, which I think for anyone, switching to research full-time for an extended period of time is, like, very different, and it's something where I think naively, you're, like, in your summer research experiences, or even, like, your research experiences where you're university, like, I think you get, like, a really you get a taste of what research is, but it's a little bit different than when you're like 100% in charge of your own project. So it's like, I always, you know, towards the end, like kind of would branch off and like be designing and doing my own experience experiments. But, you know, you always kind of had this guidance of a mentor. And so um, when I moved to Switzerland, it was very different. First of all, like, I guess I can get to the culture stuff next, but it was just very different because it was like, okay, I like had a couple of meetings with Sebastian and it was like, what am I going to work on? And so then I was like, okay, I'll spend a couple of weeks. Like I spent like a week or two reading papers and I like came up with a project and it was like, okay, sounds good. And then I like kind of asked different lab members for like help learning different techniques, but it was definitely more self-directed, which at times, you know, I like wasn't that good at self-directing myself. <laughs> like, there would be weeks where I'd be like, eh, I'm kind of, like not doing that much in lab. And then of course there'd be weekends where I would like come in and be you know, really excited to kind of solve some problem and would do like a million, you know, PCRs and gels and stuff. Um, So that was like definitely different, like getting used to that, which for me, I think was actually a really big struggle because it was, you know, kind of a point where I started to, that like seeping doubt of like, am I even good at science, which is like, I think just the creeping doubt of any research and um, I think a lot of people at least in America we call it like the third year graduate school slump where um, it's kind of in America you take courses like the first two years of graduate school and so like in the third year is like you're really just doing research full-time and that's like your whole life and it, it you start to like the ups and downs of like whether an experiment fails like starts to get you more and more <laughs> and you're like maybe everything is going to fail and maybe my project will never work out and all that kind of things and I think I went through a lot of that that year when I was in Switzerland, but I I don't know. I think that's a little bit more of like a personal experience, Um, but it was important to kind of learn. I think then that my whole personality can't just be tied to my research and it's really important to kind of have balance in life. Um, Yes, which I think something that the European model is a little bit better at than the US model. So like I had built in, you know, four or five weeks of vacation I think all of the graduate students um, in Switzerland also have that where you get like four or five weeks of paid vacation, which is insane. The graduate students also make a lot more money there than <laughs> in Switzerland in particular than um, you know we do in the US um, because I think like, I don't know, the, the country like understands that people could be doing other things um, with their time. Um, but I think, so there's definitely a bit more emphasis on balance I think in Europe I think in general, like things are a little bit more like professional people really treat research as a job and like, um, that can be really nice. Um, but I think in terms of like the scientists, like everyone was super welcoming and friendly. My lab group there was incredible. What was really exciting was, um, having people from so many different countries, um, which I think you know, all my universities, I think you meet a lot of people from different places, but in Switzerland and at EPFL in particular, like, I think something like more than half, at least something like 80% of people may be non-Swiss. So like my whole lab was like mostly Italian people. We had English people, Americans. It was definitely very multicultural, which was super exciting and interesting. Um, You know, I had a A Russian PhD student started the first time as me, which is making me smile because he just defended his thesis a couple weeks ago. And so I got to go to that virtually, which was exciting. Um, uh, So I think that was, I think anytime you can get out of your country for an extended period of time can be a really eye-opening experience. Um, On a personal level, you know, I got a lot better at French. I thought I was gonna, (laughs) because I spoke some Portuguese, I was like, oh, this is a romance language it'll be so easy to learn. And I was like, oh, not that easy to learn, but um, got to speak French, you you know, you, I think one thing that's great about Europe is like, it's very dense. So you get to travel to a lot of different places. And I got to like go to Italy and France and um, Spain and stuff. And so that was, that was very cool. definitely, like, I don't know, a personal highlight for me, but, uh, I think work-wise, like, I think it was, it was also, um, you know, it, it built into me a a whole new level of respect for international researchers and that they have to, you know, I was able to come there, and this is so classic American, just being like, you know, I speak some French, but, like, you know, my advisor was German, and, um, you know, he studied in the US, so I mean, for like decades, so his English is amazing, but, um, you know, but his whole lab like ran in English, right? Because we have people coming from somewhere else and like the common denominator ends up being English. And like, that's such a privilege, like if like any advantage I have in life, it's being born in America and speaking English. And so I have much easier access to educational opportunities in the US, but then also like, you know, when I present science, it's in my native language and the hard part is just getting over the stage fright but you know I understand like that's a billion times ma- like magnified if you know if I had to give a science presentation in French like <laughs> <laughs> that would be unreal so um I think that's something that I, I do hope um one thing I think that you know EPFL did amazingly was that they offered free English, French, like German, Italian classes to everyone. So I was able to get like free French classes through the university and that was like awesome. And that's something I think we, I wish we did more in the States was to have more support for um, people to come and like learn English, um, which is something you know, I think there's a lot of informal options and uh, things like that, but it's, I think we could do more in science to, kind of re-democratize it in terms of language, because I know it's something that, you know, decades ago it used to be that to get a PhD in chemistry, you also had to be, you know, fluent enough to read a paper in German or Russian or like one of a couple languages. And because there was so much chemistry publications coming out of Russia and German in those languages. And I think it's a shame that now it's expected that papers have to be written in English. And there's like some reviewers who will be really, I think quite like, I don't know, (laughs) snooty, bigoted, uh, closed-minded, where they'll be like, oh, like, even if the science in the paper is good, they'll, like, think less of it because maybe, like, the grammar isn't correct. But, like, that's something that I think can be improved in, like, editing processes and maybe something that, like, journals need to think more actively about or, like, screen review comments for that kind of thing because it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, I don't know. I'd also hope that, like, maybe there becomes more of a culture of, like, publishing in other languages. I don't know if it makes sense for all this to converge to English, but you know, every once in a while, like, I'll find a paper in French and I'll be so excited <laughs> to read it, um, which is fun. So I don't know. I, I, I do hope that that's a, a thing that maybe one day will happen, but um, yeah. In general, I love I loved the European system. I think it's great, but yeah that's a personal reasons thing. I came back to America
0: <laughs> yeah yeah those are some phenomenal experiences you shared and
1: so yeah coming to
0: your grad school days. so how was grad school like starting grad school like how was it sort of was it sort of radically different from what you experienced when undergrad but or like you were sort of pretty much prepared to negotiate through grad school or did grad school sort of throw any more challenges to you how was it sort of finding an advisor and lab and how was it sort of deciding on an area of research that will interest you for the next five or so years?
1: Yeah, um, that's a good question. So this is something where it's like different everywhere. So <laughs> I will say I know in the European model, um, also like England, which I guess is part of Europe, but their university system I feel like is always so different. Um, uh, like people will apply into certain labs like when they plan a graduate school. And that's also something that's true at many United States programs. So um, like, I don't know, one example, I have a friend in mechanical engineering here. And so he had to like kind of pick his advisor before he even started the program. But um, I think a lot of US programs in biology, biological engineering, um, and even a lot that I found in chemical engineering, like you'll either do rotations, um, which is, you know, you'll spend time in different labs for a couple of weeks or a couple of months throughout like your first semester, your first year to get to know research in the department and like actually kind of try out a different lab group and see what it's like. And if you get along well with the people and your mentor, and if you actually like doing, you know, the day to day pipetting type activities that you're going to be doing. Um, so that's something I think is really valuable. So a little bit you come into your program um with an idea of like you know three or four people you want to work with and in my program they do these introductory talks where everyone all the professors come over the series of like a week or two or like two or three weeks (laughs) couldn't all come in one week two or three weeks and they'll like give you know 30 minute research presentations and be like I'm planning a recruiting you know one student, two students, three students and then people will follow up and kind of set up um Uh, rotations like work in their lab or in other programs like people just you know have meetings and talk more about research and like specifically like what projects people might be working on and that kind of thing. Um, So there's that choice. So for me one thing that I think as I made this process, it was nice that I had the chance to try out so many different like subfields and projects and you know I'd had this extended research experience in Sebastian's lab. which I really enjoyed, but also kind of shaped what I thought I wanted out of a mentor. So I mentioned like he had gone on fraternity leave um, while I was there, which is like awesome. But um, like, you know, then I was kind of like left a little bit like <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. <laughs> and so I think it's something I realized was like, okay, a little bit when I get into grad school, like I think I want a mentor who's like a little bit more hands-on, who I like know I can meet with like once a week or something. Um, even if like, I still wanna be independent in like choosing my research directions, it's like valuable to me to like have someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, so that was one thing I knew. And then the other thing was that, uh, this was like weirdly advice, like my French teacher gave me back at Caltech, but she was like, you should pick a woman mentor because you will never know what will happen. And which is like kind of spooky, but like <laughs> um, I think this is even like pre me too, but you're like, okay, like, it's better to be safe than sorry, and then also, like, um, this sounds so ridiculous, because it's, like, like, it's very unlikely that this will happen to someone. I mean, I think sexual harassment is, unfortunately, pretty pervasive in society, and I think most schools, like, work really hard to screen out people who are problematic and, like, you know, a lot of times it'll be safe but I mean there are like high profile cases of where that's not the case you know like you can look at Christian Ott at Caltech um, who like sexually harassed like two students and like drove them out of his lab um, and it took a long time for there to be like actual repercussions for that so I think yeah I think that's something where I realized like I really wanted to have a woman mentor um, both because you know of those reasons and also because I think uh, I knew that she would, like, maybe, like, see herself in me more, <laughs> so it was, like, uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't have to worry about, like, you know, I don't know, some of, like, the minor sexism things that happen in labs where, like, you know, the woman ends up being the person who, like, takes notes or, like, plans group activities or, like, that kind of thing, which, like, honestly, I still am that person, but it feels less like it's a sexism thing <laughs> because, my lab is actually like 75% women. So we have like mostly women graduate students and um, postdocs and stuff. So, you know, which is maybe because, you know, my PI is a woman. So that was something I think that ended up being really important to me. And it was just kind of like, you know, after all these years, like being engineering, I was like, where it is a kind of male dominated space. It's like, yeah, it would be nice to um, spend, have like a build more of a network of women. So Um, Yeah, so there was that. And then I I knew I wanted to do research um, related to microbiome stuff. So it was my branching off of um, loving enzymes and loving protein engineering to say like, okay, well, we know that the world's best protein engineers are these like microbes that are hosting a lot of these enzymes. And I started just reading more about that. And there was kind of like, you know, this big boom in research about microbiome, about the microbiome and how it impacts health and you know, the first, like, microbiome transplant studies were being done, and I, all the studies are super, super cool, and we have great people at MIT who study that, like, Eric Alm, Um, but I realized, like, I wanted to kind of do a little bit more mechanistic studies, and, like, you know, think about this from maybe, like, how does the host accommodate, this very diverse microbiota and like how do we pick the good ones and keep the bad ones out and obviously this breaks down in disease but for a lot of people you know we're able to be exposed to you know trillions of microbes in our environment and we pick out the ones that are healthy for us and so like what goes into that selection process you know and there's a lot of different ways you can look at this like diet lifestyle you know genetics um, and the one thing that i think uh our group focuses on is like the mucus barrier which is where most of our microbiome ends up living like in our gut but also like in our mouth and our eyes and our for women like in the sorry for people with vaginas (laughs) in the vaginal tract Um, so there's this huge interface of ourselves in the environment and so like what goes into that how is mucus you know interacting with bacteria what can we learn about it what can we then take and give to people who maybe have disrupted mucus barriers to create new therapies that are working differently than traditional antibiotics? Um, so that was really exciting, and you know, now I'm a fifth-year graduate student, which goes by in a blink, I have to say. <laughs> um, but in general, I think my experience here at MIT has been, um, in some ways, like different than I imagined. So one thing I think that goes a lot more into MIT than I think. I realized before coming here is like the fact that we're kind of embedded right here in Boston and and now Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's this huge biotech environment, which is incredible and really nice now as I'm looking for like opportunities when I graduate. But there's just so much research going on. It's like very high energy and it's fast paced and it's exciting. And you meet people from different universities all the time. So like we have collaborations with people at Tufts, people at Harvard, people at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. So it's like a very, everything here seems to revolve around research, which is great in a research sense. Sometimes can be a con in a life sense where sometimes I'm like, uh oh, like all of my friends (laughs) are researchers, (laughs) you know? So sometimes, you know, I know people who like make a really conscious choice to like live with, people get roommates who like aren't scientists so that they like have a little bit more life perspective or to like join different um hobbies outside like doing improv or improv comedy or like something like this so that they like meet people who aren't scientists that you like don't get too wrapped up in this world because sometimes I think for your mental health that can be like bad (laughs) but um and like for me you know my partner's also a scientist so like our house is hello science all the time Um, but um yeah so that was definitely something that's like you know really exciting and i i knew it was a factor when i decided to come to mit but i didn't realize like how much it would play into everything that we do and it is really nice too there's like loads of conferences here so we don't have to travel quite as much um not that that matters anymore but um it's exciting and then the other thing is that i think people think of mit as being this like really aggressive competitive place you know or like again, I think as I was talking about Caltech, like, you need to be, like, a genius, or, like, otherworldly to, like, be here, but, like, you know, researchers are just people, and, like, everybody has, like, different talents, and, um, you know, different levels of, like, how much they want to work in the lab, and, like, some people, I do have friends who are, like, you know, everything they want to do, they live and breathe their science, and, like, they are delighted to be in the lab 80 hours a week, but, like, I am a person I like can't do that. (laughs) I've like learned like I need a bit more balance and you know for some periods of time like if we have a deadline or if like something's you know going really well then like yeah I can like work really hard and like get things done but like on balance like I need to incorporate exercise and like sleep for eight or nine hours a night and um, you can tell I don't have kids but (laughs) it's it's nice to have that that balance and I think that's something I really value and I think it's something that you know, everybody values around the world no matter where you are. And I think, you know, universities are becoming more and more supportive of that. And, you know, there's a lot of offices that will, you know, to promote work life balance. And, you know, we have different offices that prevent discrimination, and that's really useful. Um, yeah that was
0: those are some very great points you've made and as you said it's more like uh, academics are also just people it's not they are some high level geniuses or the way the award ceremonies and prizes work they are not only Solitary white male genius every year who gets get yeah. ticket to Stockholm, so yeah. So a great thing. So you in your grad school you have been working with mucus and from the little that you have described of the mucuses, they seem to be very interesting stuff. So could you just tell us about mucus and what exactly have you been working during grad school?
1: Sure, okay. This is the part usually where I go on a mucus rant and people's eyes glaze over, but <laughs> um, Yes, I I think it's something like, you know, it's a very underappreciated material. Like I think the only time we ever think about mucus is like when you're sick and like your nose is runny and then you're like, why is this thing here? This is so irritating. But you know, um, most of our body, like a lot of our body is covered by skin, right? But everything that isn't covered by skin is covered in basically a mucus membrane. So even like your inner ear has like mucus molecules in it. um, Your tear fluid has mucus, saliva, I think I mentioned a lot of these niches before. I always realize I'm much more comfortable rambling off different body parts than most people are listening <laughs> to it. Um, but and it's really important because, you know, I think when we talk about immunity, like, you know, we often say like, the first barrier of defense is your skin. And it's true that like skin is incredible and, you know, great at self-healing and, you know, you can stop bleeding. We have clotting factors, etc. And like the keratin skin does a great job of keeping things out but it also keeps things in. Um, and the problem is, is that like, you know, we need to take things in and release things as organisms. And so if we were just made out of like an impenetrable bubble, like that's not really sustainable. So what mucus does is it's this incredibly dynamic um, selective barrier to transport of like different molecules. So like, you know, we inhale Air, right, and that ends up having to penetrate our mucus, like in our lungs. Um, So we need to like let some molecules like be transported through the mucus. So that small molecules like air, you know, there's nutrients that will like absorb through our intestines. Um, But you also have to keep out, you know, many bad things. So that's viruses, pathogens, you know, even just like clumps of dust. Um, And what I think is so cool about mucus too, on top of that, (laughs) is You know it's like a really similar substance that's actually produced all throughout our body but it is ph adaptive it adapts to the niche so like in our eyes where it's a neutral ph like mucin is really lubricative and so like it it will be something that like you know i think most engineers will know that like water is actually not it's an okay lubricant but it's not really that great so like we don't build up friction as we're like blinking all the time that would be incredibly painful right um but in other areas of our body we need like a stronger barrier like um in the stomach where like in response to the acidity um the molecules that kind of create the mucin gel get uh, more protonated and it causes them to kind of collapse and form this like thicker gel that will like protect our stomach lining from the own acid that we produce um and it is funny because there's some pathogens who like kind of evolved around this so like helobacter pylori which Causes stomach ulcers will actually secrete urea to lower, to raise the pH around it so that it's less acidic. And so then it makes it easier for it to swim through the mucus and like get to the epithelial in the stomach. Um, so that's just some mucus fun facts. <laughs> but um, I think the thing that, so I've been studying um, saliva. Um, I have like two projects I've really been working on. So one is studying saliva and like how it affects like bacteria in the mouth. And so part of why I do that is because saliva is a really nice um, model to study because it's really easy to collect saliva from humans versus it's pretty difficult to get unaltered like lung mucus or something from someone's intestines. Um, But we can really easily collect an abundance of saliva to study in the lab. And so what I've kind of found is that um, beyond kind of like the barrier functions of mucus, there's um, sugars actually on the proteins that make this like gel that end up being responsible for a lot of its effects. So these sugars, which is kind of, you know, sugars are this forgotten uh, biomacromolecule, right? We're obsessed with DNA-RNA protein, but we forget about carbohydrates. but actually, um, they play a really important role in immunity and signaling for cells. And obviously as bacteria, they're constantly sensing nutrients in their environment. So what we find is actually that these like sugars within mucus are like really responsible for a lot of its protective effects as relate to bacteria. So um, when we expose the bacteria in the mouth to these sugars, they will like basically stop engaging in a lot of uh, virulent behaviors like forming biofilms or engaging in um, genetic transfer and producing toxins that would kill other bacteria. So kind of by introducing these sugars into like the oral environment, you can, you know, promote more beneficial species and prevent um, bad guys from kind of taking over Um, because it is really interesting you know in healthy people like there's a certain bacteria that causes cavities streptococcus mutans and almost everybody has it but like I don't know about you like I haven't gotten a cavity well I shouldn't brag I got one cavity (laughs) but you know in my you know almost 30 years of existence I have one cavity right and I also have you know friends who will unfortunately get cavities all the time. And I don't think they're worse at brushing their teeth or like doing things like that, but it's, um, you know, when people have like these different saliva properties, they're a lot more susceptible to getting cavities from these bacteria, which other people are able to control really easily. So um, I've really been studying kind of like what's about these sugars and like what's specifically about mucus, like we can then take and kind of turn into a therapeutic to potentially like stop these bacteria from um, doing such bad causing cavities in people's mouth, which I know is something that like, you know, when you say it out loud, sounds like a really small problem. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I will say 90% of Americans get cavities at some point. And then really the way we think about this is that, you know, this is a model where we're learning more about like the influence that mucus has on bacteria. And we've come to see that this is really generalizable and it applies you know, not just to gram-positives, but also gram-negatives, also to fungal pathogens like candida ablicans. You know, we see it in a lot of different niches, like in the lung, in the gut. Um, I'm also working at my second project now is studying the female, uh, the studying the genital tract. Um, so studying the vagina and uh, the cervix and cervical mucus and how that influences what bacteria colonize the vagina. And one thing that's really interesting about the vaginal niche is that um, unlike most places in the body um, where you really want a diverse microbiome, you know, we talk a lot about like diversity and gut microbe health, but in the vagina, actually, you want to have a domination of just a few species and they're usually lactobacillus and it's generally thought that those species promote um, health in the vagina. And so what happens is when you have other uh, microbes take over, you're at higher risk for contracting STDs, um, especially HIV and, um, you know, this irregular uh, vaginal microbiome is like a really big problem in Africa and, you know, up to a third of women kind of have um, colonization with kind of these unfavorable species and it really increases people's risk of HIV infection, but also preterm birth um, and a variety of other disorders. So. But there's very little known of like why do some people end up having these bacteria versus others because um, there may be some there doesn't isn't like an obvious lifestyle factor that's implicated. So I think we're working on studying like how can we figure out again you know taking what we learned from the mouth and all these other niches like that we know that these good sugars are important for promoting beneficial bacteria and kind of taming um, potential pathogens like can we create new therapies for the vagina that can help um, amul- treat this bacterial vaginosis, um, the technical term, but yeah, so it's exciting. Um, and I think kind of, you know, as I continue on in science, I'm keen on continuing in uh, microbiome based therapeutics. And um, I don't know if this is the time to talk about it, but yeah, I think I've decided I'm not gonna stay on in academia. So partially for like personal reasons and, You know, I think one thing that's really hard about uh, the academic lifestyle is you're often forced to move a lot, which is, um, you know, true in some places more than others, but especially in America, like, (laughs) we're a big country and, you know, I've already moved coast to coast um, and around and I've really enjoyed all those experiences, but, you know, um, I think I'm like ready to kind of settle in Boston and have it be my place and so, I'm kind of like keen for that stability and um in terms of like work there's so much really exciting um, biotech around here that there's so many startup companies so many more established companies pharmaceutical companies that are doing really incredible research that is truly just as exciting as like what people are doing in academic labs like i, I think sometimes in academia we like you know can be on our high horse and like think that somehow we have the secret sauce or like we're the only people doing exciting science but that's definitely not true and I'm really excited for the possibility of like um, more directly translating my research into like therapies and seeing more of like what it's like to turn a scientific advance like into a commercial product and um, having it come around to kind of impact people's lives because um, there is so much cool work in academic science that you know sometimes gets left to the wayside so um, I'm, I'm keen to see like, you know, these kind of things through. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Those are some, uh, as usual, very great points you have made. And so, so it's a to your thing. So something that we see is like, basically, uh, as you said, uh, in your work with mucuses, you have been working on a lot of different things, sort of combining different techniques from Disparate areas like protein engineering, glycobiology and all. So this is sort of reflective of science as a whole. Many people think In science, you basically go from A to V, but rather the path from A to V is quite an intricate one. It's so basically a random walk that you take from A to V. It's not a direct pathway. So was it something... Oh, yeah. <laughs> So could you just sort of shed light on that, and how was it sort of coming through some insights, as you said, things that weren't usually associated with mucus, but you sort of chanced upon them, and how was it sort of coming across them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I'd say in general, I think uh, something <laughs> my partner said actually was like, if you aren't working on something totally different than you expected, or learning about something totally different than you expected during your PhD, then like you're doing it wrong because uh, science always leads you in new directions. So I never thought that I would end up, you know, learning so much about carbohydrates or um, glycobiology, um, which glycan is just another word for uh, carbohydrate or which is just another word for sugar. I guess I sometimes I forget how jargony I can be. <laughs> um, but it was just, you know, we, we really, in this group, we like started out thinking that the protection of mucus was all about the physical barrier. But as we did more and more experiments, we found out that like it wasn't enough. And we realized that these sugars played a really important role. And we've been lucky to have insane, amazing collaborators, right? Um, you know, my work has been co-authored with like uh, some scientists at the University of Georgia. Actually, there's a big, uh, carbohydrate analysis group there. Um, you know, there's also, um, the Center for Functional Glycomics at Harvard here, which we've also collaborated with. Um, so it's been, you know, it's, it's just a lesson for me continuously that, like, as much as I, like, think I, like, know what I'm doing, like, (laughs) the best science comes when you're open to, like, reaching out to other people and, like, you're going to talks and learning new things and, Bringing that back into your work um, in ways that you like maybe don't expect. Um, Yeah, I guess that's as much as I can say without getting like way too nitty gritty into experiments that people don't want to hear about.
0: (laughs) So, as you talked about your experiences, and you said like MIT has a sort of a research culture around it, there's next door, there's Harvard, and then there are the hospitals around them, and there's a an insane biological biotechnological setup around there. So Caltech was a small school, as you said, and MIT seems to be a quite a big school, with an even bigger schools around it and an eco, bigger ecosystem around it. So how is it sort of, uh, was it a, a sort of a reality check or was it sort of a pleasant experience sort of coming into these transitioning to this environment?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Yeah, it was definitely different. So I really liked how small Caltech was. Um, I'm a person, it's like really important to me to feel like part of a community. And um, coming to Boston, I think it took me a little bit to kind of like find my community. And, you know, I was initially even like especially grumpy about how cold it was here, which is a little bit ridiculous coming from Switzerland where it was also cold, but it is even colder here. but now after four years, I've really adjusted to it, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, the snow is the best. Um, yeah, but maybe that's Stockholm Syndrome. Um, yeah, I think it, it's definitely really different. I think the thing that happened the most was that I changed a little bit how I thought about myself as a scientist and, like, what my contribution could and, like, should be, right? Um, which I think should is always kind of a, a bad word when you're talking about yourself because, like, why should anything be? Like, I think we can, people should just, I I just said the word should, but (laughs) people, people have to do what um, makes them happy, and what works, and um, you can't engineer your life, unfortunately, like 100%. So, um, where am I going with this? Oh yeah, I think, I think really what I, what I have really truly learned in grad school is I think you know, there's a part of you when you go into science, you know, and I was talking about pharmaceuticals and I talk about Bosch and stuff, but, like, there's a part of you that's, like, oh, I'm gonna, like, invent this thing and, like, it will be great and, like, I will save the world with my, like, you know, menstrual pad or, like, invent, you know, I don't know. When I was a kid, I really wanted to invent, like, contact lenses that were sunglasses. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, like, you think you're gonna do something, and I think that's, you know, it's something that we do a disservice to in society where we, like, put up, like, these lone inventors up on pedestals, like, people like Elon Musk, which is, like, Elon Musk, um, a little bit of problematic person, but, (laughs) or, like, you know, Steve Jobs, um, which I guess, too, also, these are, you know, white men, but where we say, like, oh, it's, like, these geniuses that did this thing, and it's, like, you know, even geniuses, even like academic geniuses, it's like the work that they do, it's always a collaboration and it's always built off the advances other people have made, you know, we're working with this huge body of scientific literature, which is more accessible to us than ever. And I think, um, you know, at companies, you know, it's it makes sense, I think, as like a narrative thing for like one person to get the credit, right? And as society, we kind of like that story, I think especially in America, but like um, really, you know, like the success of Apple is built off of thousands of engineers who all worked really hard and like made their own, you know, small and big contributions towards like these cool products. Um, also with Tesla, you know, it's like also, you know, Elon Musk bought Tesla from somebody else, so he <laughs> so already invented that technology. And you know, he does a really good job of like marketing and like developing a business. But like in terms of like technological innovation, that's again, you know, drawing upon decades of battery research and storage that like thousands of people have you know put their lives into. And so, I think yeah, just like as you get older as a scientist, I think you both you gain this humility that I think is really important where. You realize like okay there are cases where sometimes like one person can make a really big jump and those are really important and that's why I guess we like those stories of Newton and Faraday and people like that but um most of like the really useful things that happen like really are just hundreds of people like dozens of people working like you know a group of people working together but then you know building it off of the research of dozens or hundreds of people that we're reading about in papers and pulling those conclusions like into our research and like helping us out and so I think yeah it's a it's just wonderful to learn that like in a way it's like even better where I think like I've taken this pressure a little bit off myself that I have to be like this perfect scientist or like do everything but like if I can just do my part and like contribute the best that I can and like make sure that I'm doing rigorous exciting science like that's as much as I can ask of any one person and as much as I should like ask of myself and so I don't have to like (laughs) yeah be I don't have to be Albert Einstein to like still have a career that's like worth having in science yeah that's
0: some incredibly fantastic points you've made and that's quite especially about not uh, some male white geniuses it's more about science as a collaborative enterprise and that's something that random box intends to show it's not just a person toiling away at the lab it's rather it's hundreds and thousands of people something like the human genome project comes to your mind so while the yeah. academy, the academy, the awards are just sent out to a dozen handful dozen of people. The paper itself had thousands and thousands of authors, and this is something that we commonly see in astrophysics and high energy physics where papers are authored by multiple authors, running into hundreds rather than just tens or single digits. That's the usual case, and this also has to do a lot way with the three, the obscure three-person limitation that the Nobel Prize has for its prizes, where people get a wrong sense of what research happens. And we're actually standing on the shoulder of giants rather than it being a solo enterprise. So this (laughs) was a real great point you made. So coming to 2020, 2020 was an incredibly fantastic year for a lot of people in multiple different ways. So how did the pandemic affect your work? How did the year affect your work? And how has it sort of impacted you as a scientist, were there any changes that happened with conferences going online and virtual format that you'd like to see in the post-pandemic world? Or are there something that you want to revert back to normal as soon as the world gets back to a semblance of normal?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Great question. Indeed, 2020 has been fantastic for everybody. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll start saying, like I think I've been really, really lucky. Um, like in that, I think I've been in the best position possible. You know, I'm at a university that's well-funded, like even like, you know, where MIT's um, Broad Institute, um, it's a joint venture between MIT and Harvard, like converted all of their high throughput sequencing uh, machinery into like doing uh, PCR testing for Boston and um, like the area and so it's something now like they're doing 10% of the cases or 10% of the tests that like the whole country is doing like is being run like down the street from me and like that's pretty incredible <laughs> so um, that's something where like you know in terms of just pandemic logistics like SMIT MIT was starting up or like shutting down like we had incredible people advising like what the university was doing and we closed really early and I think that helped save a lot of lives which is great Um, you know even if students were really grumpy about it at the time in March when they were told to go home within a couple days but you know I was lucky like as a graduate student they didn't um, because my housing is kind of self-contained I got to stay uh, where I am on campus and you know, I've, I have my partner, so I had someone with me, I wasn't totally alone, which is something, you know, a lot of people are stuck with, like, as we've been shut down, so it's been easier for us to, like, maintain, you know, social distancing, um, because we have each other, and that's, that's been great. Um, I'm also really lucky, like, so far, um, like, I haven't lost any family members to COVID-19, so that's, (laughs) something I think I'm always really grateful for but um, yeah so I think I have been really lucky to continue to have a job and I was like honestly personally and it it worked out okay for me where I had finished up a lot of experience experiments before and so I was in the position in like March and April and May to do a lot of data analysis and I like wrote my first paper and submitted it or my first research paper and submitted it and um, so that was good so I've I've been in the position where I'm kind of later in my PhD and I can do a lot of writing. And then also then we started up the labs again in like June and July, you know, at kind of 25% capacity and we still have to be physically distanced by six feet and, you know, wearing masks. And, you know, we have the luxury of also, since we have this access to this testing facility, you know, MIT is testing people twice a week, which is insane. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky I get to feel like really safe as we come back to work, but you know, even more than that, like since I'm a fifth year grad student, I'm like, you know, have been independent for a while. So when I come back to lab and I just have to do my experiments by myself, it's okay. But I I feel a lot. I think one thing that's been a shame about this is like all of the undergraduate student research that was canceled over the summer, um, people who weren't able to get that first lab work experience and like that shadowing and that training that I think is really valuable for just letting people like know that science is like a thing that they can actually do you know it's not some theoretical thing that's like scary and impossible but like you can go into lab and you can pipette and like stuff happens and it's exciting (laughs) um but also even for like younger graduate students who like might need new help like learning techniques I think it's been really hard for them um but I think you know mentors and PIs are doing as much as they can to like maybe pivot students like doing more writing or things like that and now that we're able to have you know at least at MIT we're like up to pretty much full lab hours so uh, we are back to the place where we can like be do more teaching and hands-on stuff which is nice. Um, That's I think definitely been a shame and hopefully something will kind of overcome. I think the other thing too is like man, I'm really lucky I don't have children, which is, like, something, you know, I want to do one day, but, like, I know parents have been suffering so much. I think, in a way, it's, like, the one good thing that has come out of it, maybe, is that people are now so aware of, like, the struggles that, like, working parents have, (laughs) and, like, Um, in a way, too, like, how inequitable, like, childcare responsibilities end up being, where, like, you know, a lot of time women do, most, most of the time women do most of it, like, even uh, if they're working full-time, it'll kind of still come down on them, and so I think it's something where, like, now we, as a working culture, have just become more aware, and, like, are more um, understanding of, like, the fact that, like, working parents sometimes have to make compromises. Sometimes your kids will run into Zoom calls, but like that's a representation of the fact that like, you are caring for these people like all of the time. <laughs> and it's something um, that I think, you know, as we come back, like I, I hope that workplaces continue to be more accommodating of like flexible work culture. And, you know, I hope one day in America, we get, you know, family leave, um, and even before that, even just like guaranteed maternity leave, because that's still not a thing that's guaranteed in America. So that would be great to happen. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, Zoom, I think one thing that's been really great is just how much it's... I, I think it's it's been really encouraging how flexible and adaptable like the scientific community has been. That's been really cool to see, you know, like everyone who started up like Zoom seminars and um invited speakers and how great it is to like be able to like see people outside of puzzle. so like you know i talked a lot about like how it's lucky in boston we have access also to like other universities around here um so you can like pull speakers from then during normal times but now it's like yeah i can ask anybody from anywhere over the world to come give like a 20-minute talk to like my silly mit club (laughs) and you know you don't have to worry about like flying and stuff so I think that's really great I think too for for women that's a really big advance because um, a lot of times when we would plan speaker lineups for like our department seminar like you know we would be like we want to see more women we want to see like more uh people from underrepresented groups and you know leadership would say like well we invite women but they don't come and you know even you know my advisor's a woman and she has a daughter and so she's like you know I just I don't travel as much like I, I will travel like for I'll do like you know four travel talks a year but like I'm not gonna do more than that because I like need to be home and like it's not worth it and um, that kind of thing and so I think it's but before I think there were, we were like well maybe we could do virtual things and people were like well that's like not really that good but I think Hopefully, now we're more open to these tools and we can have Zoom seminars, and that will enable us to hear from like a broader diversity of people, like, you know, not just women, but internationally um, and so forth. And I think that's really important. Um, Yeah, so I think Zoom seminars are my favorite thing that's come out of it. You know, obviously, I really miss having some in-person meetings, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I miss being able to have our group meetings and, like, different lab socials, and, um, for me, like, Zoom time is just obviously not the same as everybody knows, um, but, uh, yeah, so I think for conferences, that's definitely something I think now I've experienced a lot of different conference formats, so, like, I did AK in November, which was, like, you know, normally, like, this tens of thousands of person conference, like, really big one, Um, American Institute of Chemical Engineering conference, sorry, to clarify that. So it's normally like everybody goes and it's, it's like a definitely like a big conference environment. And at least personally, I felt like that experience online was not that good because it was like too broad and like too hard to kind of find, um, the people you're interested in. And in a way, like the benefit of that kind of conference is like seeing people in person and like networking, um, versus I've also been, I've given a couple of, like, smaller talks for, like, kind of niche -er things. So, um, this great, uh, postdoc in, uh, the University of Colorado, uh, Lindsay Burcham has, like, started this, like, uh, streptococcal, uh, this speaker series with, like, uh, people who study, like, streptococcal biology. (laughs) Um, oh, I think my microphone cut out, but... Yeah, she started this speaker speaking. Well, spe- she started this kind of like a smaller group of people, so it's like I don't know, maybe a hundred people in, who are interested in streptococcal biology, and they come from around the world. But then you know, the talk I gave there was like, the audience felt so much more engaged, and you know, it was a live talk versus a pre-recorded talk, and like it's interesting. I think we're all figuring out like what things um, make like a speaking experience better, and. Like, I don't know. I, I do think like within the next couple of years, we'll have like more optimized this like virtual conference experience. But I hope it's something we stick to because as you think about like, there were rumblings before of like as academics, I think we're all aware that climate change is a big problem. And can we really justify flying all over the world, <laughs> you know, for conferences? Not that I really did that. Like I, I only went to one travel conference in grad school, but you know, there are lots of professors who will be like traveling, you know, 20 times a year or something. So um, it's really a pretty big burden. Um, so I think virtual conferences will do a lot to kind of um, change that and democratize science, which I think will be great. I think that was a very long answer about virtual conferences. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That was a great answer. And this was a
0: conversation that actually defines random walks. This, if anyone next time asks me what's the random works podcast about, this is the, I'll point them out to, to epi- as this <laughs> epitomizes a true and true random walk. This was an incredible experience talking with you on rate things. Right from your mentorship, grad school, uh, getting into terrific research labs, your research with mucus, fun facts about mucuses, and then or ramblings about your your conferences, 2020 as a whole, and all the impact and the way things. Uh, hidden disparities and biases have come to light. This was an incredible experience and an incredible random walk. Thank you for this time. And so finally, as a random walk podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and indulge in such a disposable random walk?
1: Okay, so this is random. I have a couple of people in mind, but um, I'm not really sure. So my one, if you really want a really random walk, um, is one of my college friends, Janani Komar, and she was someone who started out, uh, she (laughs) was uh, at Caltech, and so she, she majored in chemistry, and she actually started um, medical school, and then after a year, realized it wasn't for her, and has completely switched tracks, and now uh, she got her master's in religion, and is now studying her PhD in South Asian studies um, in Toronto, so it's someone who's just like totally switched tracks and I mean she's still an academic so it counts for that but <laughs> no longer does science um but I think she's someone who really inspired me in terms of like just realizing what she liked and what she didn't and following it and being a lot happier than she was when she was just in medical school um I almost would pick also her boyfriend um <laughs> um Sean oh my god Sham Salati Yeah, so Sham is someone who uh, majored in electrical engineering in undergrad and then um, has like switched into doing bioscience and like now is starting a startup around COVID testing. Um, I didn't even say his name, Sham Salati, yeah. So he's very cool um, and honestly, someone I only know casually, but um, yes. Who else has like a really random log?
0: It can be anyone you're inspired by. I know you have
1: things to do. <laughs>
0: that's confusing. Um.
1: Yeah, like, I guess it, it can be, like, anyone random ever. Like, I don't know. I mean, if I could pick anyone I really wanted you to interview, it would be Melinda Gates, but I know <laughs> that's beyond. But in terms of, like, um someone whose journey know. that was like going what
0: someone you actually know so
1: oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay someone I actually know um oh I feel like I can't just pick I guess oh my god if I just pick my friends that feels pretty ridiculous
0: that works that works there is no mm. charges penalties for nepotism <laughs>
1: um Yeah, I guess my other one would be my college roommate, Anne, who I've talked about a bit here, um, Anne Wang. And so she studies high energy particle physics at Harvard. Um, But she's the one who started out uh, as a pre med and kind of switched to physics because she really liked it. And um, she's also, it's taken her all around the world and, you know, working at CERN and things like that. But um, yeah, definitely a cool story too.
0: So that was a fun experience. Thank you, and thanks a lot for your
1: time. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Avigan. Thanks for letting me ramble.